0: Great, two readings this morning. The first one from Mark 1, verses 16 to 20. Jesus calls his first disciples. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And then Romans 12, verse 10 to 21. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction faithful in prayer Share with the Lord's people who are in need practice hospitality Bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse Rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn live in harmony with one another Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position Do not be conceited Sorry, it looks like it looks like it's missed a bit. That's all right. I'm just going to crack on with what's written here. I apologize. If is it up there? On the contrary. Oh, it doesn't say, oh, there. There we go. On the contrary. It just missed the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Hannah. An extra kudos to you for noticing that there was a word missing from God's word. That's, that's very impressive. <laughs> if you memorise the whole thing. No, no, good. good. Um, why don't we pray? Father, send your spirit on us now, say that... Um, Words won't just be empty words or, or sound, but they would be your, your living words to us. And soften our hearts, prepare us to hear what you've got to say to us so that we might live in response to that with courage. Amen. Amen. I've got a clicker somewhere. Oh, breathe. Okay. That's better. There was a service a few weeks before Christmas, wasn't there, where I suddenly realized I couldn't find the clicker, and everybody went running around to find it, and we got it, which was great. Um, I, I, I'd taken it. I'd left it in the toilet or something like that. I don't know why you, why you take the clicker to the toilet, but there you do, yeah. <laughs> I wonder why the toilet wouldn't flush. Yeah, sorry. Um, in 2006, we um, moved to Bristol as I began training for ordained ministry in the Church of England. Uh, We had two young children. Um, Since their birth, we had always lived close to supportive grandparents. Uh, We knew nobody in Bristol, uh, so it was a big step into um, a new and unfamiliar world for us. Pretty quickly, we were welcomed into a, a lovely community of people who were there for the same purpose, men and women who had come from all over to study theology and ministry and mission. And the strap line for Trinity College was, "Live like the kingdom is near." Um, and I remember coming a student again. Uh, but the difference, which was fun, uh, but the difference this time was that quite a few of us had families. Uh, and one of the things that attracted us to Trinity College in particular, there, there are several kind of so-called vicar factories across the country, um, but was the, the support for families of students at Trinity. And um, I should also mention that the college had an excellent principal, the Reverend Dr. Emma Einson, who, as it happens, has recently been announced as the next Bishop of Kensington, um, our bishop. So um, that's really good news, and I'm delighted about that. I'm um, looking forward to welcoming her here at All Souls sometime. But pretty quickly, we got ourselves into kind of small groups, uh, smallish groups, threes and fours, uh, to support us through our training and formation. And Jess started meeting with um, three other students' wives. Actually, she's off to see them next weekend. No, she's going away for a couple of days. She meets up with them every year. But early on in this quad, they had this conversation about Bristol. And Jess commented on how friendly she had found the city compared to her experience of living in the southeast of England. Gemma, however, said that she found Bristol much less friendly than her native Liverpool. Um, she said it was unthinkable that two people in Liverpool would be at a bus stop or on public transport and not speak to each other. <laughs> she felt really slighted on a few occasions already. Jess's response was to advise Gemma never to move to London. <laughs> and yet, here we are now, and you're all very friendly. So <laughs> We're in a second week. Of a series looking at the practices of Jesus or some of the practices of Jesus and we're doing this because our aim as a church is to become disciples of Jesus um, or apprentices or students in modern language and that means modeling our lives and practices on his life and practices you, you know we make a mistake if we think of Jesus as simply a wise man or teacher um, CS Lewis pointed out that um, being a wise man was not a possibility that Jesus left open to us. He explicitly claimed to be God incarnate who came to live and walk amongst sinful broken humanity and died to save us. But we make the opposite mistake if we limit Jesus' role and intention in our lives to a kind of contractual act of salvation, um, like, you know, sign on the line for forgiveness of sins, done, now go tick a box in a census, we'll stick your name in a book of life and carry on your life as you have before. No, we're saved for a purpose, and that is to work towards rediscovering and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom Today, showing what the way of Jesus looks like in a world that is, frankly, a mess. That's the mission, The mission, this side of glory. That's our job till Jesus returns. And uh, last week, we looked at the impact on our spiritual lives, kind of the, the digital age, or, or what's been called the age of distraction. Um, Catholic theologian Ronald Raulheiser said, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. And we looked at how this practice of silence and solitude um, was woven throughout Jesus's ministry. It was an essential part of his lifestyle that enabled him to connect with his heavenly father and with himself. As he carved out time in what was by all accounts a very full schedule. The wilderness, literally the solitary place, uh, which we looked at. It wasn't just a place of Jesus's uh, testing, it was also the place of his recovery, his restoration, his refocusing. And we need silence and solitude. Um, I was going to ask, did anybody have a go at that during the week? We sort of set the challenge to spend five minutes of silent solitude. You know, put your hand up if you did. I won't embarrass you. Don't worry. I won't come around. Okay. All right. Um, you know, um, sometimes a preacher needs to know the sense that they might, you know, actually make a difference to people's lives. Um, sorry, <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit passive aggressive. I wasn't sure. Um, <laughs> I was at the police school this week. So occasionally on a Wednesday, I do, I do the collective worship on Wednesday. And the great thing about doing collective worship, you ask for a show of hands, everybody puts their hand up, especially year one and year two at the front there. You know, like, um, who, does anybody have a llama at home? Everybody has a llama at home. It's, just, it's very affirming as a preacher. Um, so we talked about the necessity in the spiritual life and life in general for silence and solitude. Um, but silence and solitude is different to loneliness and isolation. Richard Foster says this, loneliness is inner emptiness, solitude is inner fulfillment. So solitude, good, loneliness, bad. And um, I explain all of that and draw that contrast because loneliness is what we're looking at today. And the practice of Jesus, um, uh, of community, which was his answer to it. So uh, a summary of the problem of loneliness. We are more connected than ever, but more alone than ever, it has been said. Uh, Just this week, there's been um, a number of stories in the news making this point. Thomas Friedman argued that loneliness is actually, you could trace it back to the natural outworking of the kind of radical individualism that has its seeds right back in the Enlightenment. And he described loneliness as the great pathology of our day. Although I guess he said that before (laughs) COVID-19. And I haven't looked into the research, so I treat this with a little bit of caution, but I've heard it said that loneliness has a greater impact on obesity, than obesity on lifespan and is strongly linked, strongly linked to the general rise in depression. What I do know is that in 2018, Theresa May, Prime Minister, appointed a Minister for Loneliness in response to research suggesting that over 8 million people in the UK would describe themselves as lonely. She committed to making loneliness reduction an enduring parliamentary priority. And then came the lockdown. Here is a graph which you um, almost certainly can't read, but you'll see a sort of blue squiggly line on it. And it was given to me at, um, a training sort of weekend for new vicars, um, and it plots the journey of recovery from a moment of collective trauma, um, like the pandemic. It models... Now, when the moment of trauma happens, think, you know, sort of March 2021, when the lockdown started, the community response initially goes up. There's this sort of sense of belonging amidst the suffering, giving, um, and it kind of gives rise to this idea that we can meet the challenge and will ultimately prevail. So um, this is called the heroic phase. Um, Think of all the kind of initiatives to support key workers and volunteer at food banks and so on. The, The blitz spirit, if you like. But following this comes what is called the disillusionment phase, when it becomes clear that no amount of heroism can bring the trauma to an end or sidestep it. And it's in this sort of disillusionment phase, the sort of squiggly line going down, that you saw people giving up on community uh, a little. Certainly um, expressions of community that required commitment, all of which was exacerbated by the laws uh, enforcing social distancing and isolation. So, um, 2021 was known in the voluntary sector as the Great Resignation. But there is hope, um, the recovery phase, leading eventually to what is termed the wiser living phase. Uh, the catch is, I remember Will van der Hart saying uh, at an evening on mental health, which um, St. Stephen's hosted last year, about this time last year, I think some of us went to that, um, that this trauma cycle lasts something like two to five years. But actually, the pandemic wasn't a single traumatic event. It was a multiple traumas, one after another, after another. And it will probably take at least 10 years for us to fully recover from what has happened. So loneliness is both a chronic and an acute trend. And uh, Zoom and WhatsApp are great, um, but loneliness isn't solved by tech. In fact, um, isolation plus tech leads to tribalism, and that's another whole thing. We won't talk about that this morning. So loneliness is a problem on an individual level and on a societal level. And we're experiencing more of it. So let's look at Jesus' answer to the problem. So a quick look at our two readings. Um, first, we're going to go back to Genesis 2. Um, can anyone remember the first thing in the story of creation in Genesis, which is described as... not? I just realised I put it on the screen. Spoiler! Spoiler! <laughs> oops this is what comes from doing the screens at half past midnight can anyone tell me why it's not good in the creation story okay so the story goes good 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 um humans very good then something is not good and that is it's not good for the man to be alone that's the first problem in the bible alone is bad mark one jesus comes onto the scene And he's announced, he's baptised by John. He proclaims the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So it's a good start and it's looking good. But just like in Genesis 2, there's a problem. Well, maybe it's not a problem, but it's certainly something that Jesus is determined to address. Now, this is interesting because you could take the story of Adam and say, well, of course, Adam isn't okay on his own. Um, you know, I thought of a range of male-based observations I could make at this point, um, but decided not to. But this is, this is Jesus, and you'd expect if anyone was to be totally self-sufficient, it would be the Son of God. In fact, you might think, and with good reason considering the rest of Mark's gospel and how it plays out, that Jesus might be better off carrying out his mission on his own. The disciples are generally more of a hindrance than a help. The answer to that, of course, being that making disciples was his mission. But along comes Jesus. He sees these two fishermen, Simon and Andrew, casting their nets. He says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And immediately they get up and they follow him. This is Mark's gospel. It's short and it's to the point. Jesus calls them. They come. So now there are three. And they continue. They come across two more brothers, James and John, preparing their nets um, remember last week we saw the, a lot of the stories of Jesus' early ministry are focused on Galilee. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to get you all to act that out again um, last week. Well, that was quite a performance. Um, Jesus calls, they come, so now they are five. Jesus and his four Talmudine disciples, apprentices. It's the start of something. Several decades on, and now Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church across the Roman Empire a community of believers that has grown from these two pairs of fishermen with their teacher, Jesus, their rabbi, into this enormous thing. And here are a few things that Paul says to them. This is Romans 12, be devoted to one another in love. Verse 10, honour one another above yourselves. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. And what we're seeing here, and in numerous places across the New Testament, is a call for the believers to become a community of love and deep commitment. This is what Jesus has built from those first days on the shore of Galilee. And what's really interesting is that it's clearly a very, very imperfect process. There are, apparently, there are 59 one another commands in the New Testament, where the disciples And the church they form are taught how to relate to one another, love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. And all this points to a couple of things. First, that to follow Jesus was to be in community. It was never a solo pursuit. Jesus himself was not just a lone religious guy who stayed on a hillside. People came to him, he taught them, they went away. We saw, yes, he went to the hillside for a solitary place. That was a regular practice. But he conducted all his mission and ministry in community. The second, to be part of Jesus' community was and is a messy business. Yes, he said to his disciples they'd be recognised by their love for one another. What that doesn't say is that Jesus seemed to deliberately call into his community natural enemies. Religious people and people who lived sinful lives, collaborators with the occupiers, and zealots who had sworn oaths to overthrow the Roman rule. Through the Gospels and the the stories of the early church, we see a community that bickered and disagreed and rubbed each other up the wrong way, uh, which is not a bit like anything we can relate to from parenting our kids this weekend. (laughs) But what we see is that Jesus is more interested in commitment than maturity. He wasn't looking for the best of the best. He was looking for those who would say yes and be all in. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of stories where we see Jesus setting the bar quite high in terms of commitment and people not being able to do that. Leave your father and mother and come and follow me. Sell everything you have. Come and follow me. Lots of people weighed it up and decided it wasn't for them. So the community of God's people in the New Testament right from the start with Jesus are people of all types and all backgrounds, perhaps passionately disagreed about some things, who don't always behave brilliantly, but are learning in the hard school of forgiveness and grace to love one another. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) At least we can say the church of the 21st century is being true to its DNA. That's it. That's the picture. Jesus says, Come follow me. But he says, Come follow me along with these others. Come follow me with this bunch of difficult, messy people who you'll find irritating and problematic. Come and learn to love them. Come and learn how to love me by loving them. And he invited them to share their lives with one another. Not just an hour on a Sunday morning, but to do life together to figure it out together. Romans twelve fifteen we read, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Put simply, to follow Jesus is to live in community. There is no other way in Jesus's book. So before we come on to the kind of challenge for this week, um, as it were, a, a few notes on community. First, what it is not... Um, Community is not connectivity. Um, Connectivity, as we said, is increasing, but so is loneliness. I don't think we need to kind of rehash that all over again. It's something we've talked about before. Second, community is not chemistry. Um, You can have chemistry without community and vice versa. Yes, there's an overlap, but as we've seen, the first disciples did not have very good chemistry. The Bible uses the word, um, the Greek word koinonia, um, which means kind of community or fellowship or partnership. And Merriam Webster defines community as people with common interests living in a local area. So, community is not the same as friendship. Uh, My best friends sort of live quite a long way away from me. That's kind of symptomatic of having moved around so much in the last few years. They're brilliant friends, but they're not my community. So next up, if community is this silver bullet to loneliness, if it's the way of Jesus, then why do we struggle to wholeheartedly engage in community? So this is uh, three suggestions from Practicing the Way organization. Very good. First, uh, individualism. So by swinging so far towards self, we find it hard to commit to community. Remember uh, that graph from earlier on, the impact of trauma and disengagement. We live in an era of choice anxiety, FOMO. If I commit to this, then what if I wake up and I decide I wanna do that? We like to keep our options open. Second thing that holds us back from community, idealism. Um, We look for an ideal in community, which is an illusion. Just as people can look for that kind of the perfect partner We do the same with community. We set unrealistic expectations. And this is why all that stuff in the New Testament about the disciples sorting out their mess is so important, because it's realistic, not idealistic. By the way, probably it's the vicar's idealism about the community that's the most dangerous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, said, he who loves the dream of community more than the community itself is a destroyer of the latter. Go look him up. He was properly qualified to talk about this stuff. Third, intimidation. There you go. Um, The three I's. Are you happy? We've got three. Three all beginning with the same letter. Uh, The truth is, a genuine community of love as the people of God is a scary place. To know and to be known is intimidating. Peter experienced that with Jesus. You know, when Jesus saw right through him and he, he said, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. It's uncomfortable because Jesus knew him totally, and in community our soul is laid bare. The people we're in closest community with, those who um, we're closest to, they're the ones who see us at our worst, aren't they? Because those are the people that we are safest with. We see this with our kids all the time. You know, they hold it together at school, and then they come home, <laughs> <And> wow. <laughs> you know, I think we're all like that a bit, aren't we? So what are, then, um, the ingredients of community? I've been talking a while. Um, Why don't you just turn to the person next to you, again, um, who you now know, (laughs) and um, just say, what what is one thing that you think makes for good community? I'll just give you a breather. We've got about five minutes to go of this talk, so just have a little recharge, stretch. What do you think makes for good community? I'm going to just share two key elements which are said to be essential um, uh, for forming community and sort of in the model that Jesus did um, and the the model he set for the disciples in the early church. So the first one is vulnerability. Um, Vulnerability is difficult. um, As we just said in that sort of bit about intimidation, it can be intimidating to be real. Brené Brown has written and spoken about this a lot recently. And the truth is that vulnerability is Risky. Um, But American psychiatrist M. Scott Peck said this, there is no vulnerability without risk, but there is no community without vulnerability. There is no vulnerability without risk, but there is no community without vulnerability. Second, accountability. Accountability, crucially with love, is what enables us to change and to grow. Sometimes we need people to hold us to our decisions. I know I certainly do. And one of the most powerful examples of Christian community started in the basement of a church and had at its heart the, place, the practice of confession, along with vulnerability and accountability. It became known as a place of um, profound transformation with many of those qualities that Jesus looked for in the way his disciples related to each other. It's become a huge worldwide movement. I'm of course, talking, of course, about Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is all about vulnerability and accountability. It works, many would argue, because it's based on a model of community demonstrated by Jesus. It's where it had its roots. One suggestion of why people in church are still lonely today is because that we share our rightness with one another, but our wrongness only with God. I read that and I thought, ouch. (laughs) So to close loneliness is a problem Um, but if we do community Jesus' way way, if we did community Jesus' way it would be much less of a problem Um, the New Testament assumes that you are in community and that it is messy Um, I don't want to do down what happens here on a Sunday morning but the truth is I don't think this kind of community of vulnerability and accountability is possible on a Sunday morning I know it isn't for me so I'd just love to challenge everyone here today just to consider, to think about this, reflect about this, and consider whether they might be able to um, make time to join a midweek um, sort of small group community. We call them connect groups because at their heart they're about connecting with God and with one another. Um, there are some running already. Um, I was going to try and interview someone from one of them this morning and I didn't get organised enough, but we will in the future. Um, but the plan is to launch some more during this term ahead. Um, I know that we did a survey back in October and quite a few of you expressed an interest um, in joining a small group, of Connect group. So um, we're, we're, we're working on that and hopefully by the end of this term we'll have some more up and running. If you're looking for something more immediate and practical, um, come back next Sunday, I'd say, to hear uh, Dan Bowering speaking about the practice of hospitality um, and how Jesus built community around a table and sharing uh, food and drink. (coughs) But I'll stop there. And what we'll do is, uh, John, do you want to come up? And we'll head into a time of response and worship. We've got a few minutes, probably about seven or eight minutes or more, um, before the children rejoin us. So why don't we just take that, that time To just come before the Lord with our hearts and just open ourselves to what he wants to do amongst us today. Why Why don't we stand?